Well, people of God, having received the grace of God this morning in the Lord's Supper, I trust that your hearts are made glad because you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good because it is the word made visible. It is the sacrament that makes the goodness of God visible to taste and touch and smell. I spoke to a brother who said one of the wonderful things about uh, sipping the wine is that it lingers to the taste and you continue to taste and see that the Lord is good. And ultimately, he has done that and impressed that upon you by his gracious spirit. You have seen that our Savior hath loved you even unto death. And what kind of people would we be then, friends, if we wouldn't express thanks to him? For all his gracious benefits. We must always glorify God, friends, by showing thanks. Um, One of the things, uh, we have some here who have a Dutch Reformed background. Uh, One of the things that the Heidelberg Catechism lays out very well is it demonstrates our guilt before God. It demonstrates then the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And then by gratitude or in thanksgiving, I will live a holy life in response And that's how that catechism is laid out. And I think it is the pattern of the book of Romans, especially. But surely God expects his people to live out of thankfulness. Now, notice you do not live holy lives to be saved. You live a holy life in response to salvation. And we don't want to ever mess that up. And so you're going to hear a lot of what might sound like law tonight. But it's all as a response for the grace of God that has appeared giving us salvation. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20. For you were bought at a price. Do you remember that therefore? Do you remember that therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit which are God's? Do you see that? You were bought at a terrible price. You saw it this morning. What are you going to do in response Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit. Pierced for our transgressions was Christ Jesus. Willingly, he laid down his life for his sheep. We even heard that a little bit in uh, the reading this uh, afternoon from John chapter 10. You are loosed from your bondage to sin by his great sacrifice. And now with the heart of thanks, you must purpose in your heart, people of God, to glorify God in your body and spirit. And Paul said what? Which are God's. And there's a double sense there, isn't it? You are God's by just being created, but you are God's especially by being redeemed. In both ways, you are God's and you are not your own. And he gave you grace in the sacrament to do that. To glorify God. Isn't our God wonderful? He not only gives you a command. He gives you the grace. To follow through with that command. He feeds you richly. So you can glorify him. And if you would just apprehend the goodness of God. Through and through in these ways. You would be astonished. And you would ever be thankful. So let us today. This afternoon. Live lives of thankfulness. With the holy conduct in response to grace. And today we are called in this text to show thanks by waging war against two great enemies of our soul, the world and the lusts of the flesh. And those are two great enemies that will steal our affections from Christ and cause us to walk in a way that is not suited 
for the people of God. You heard uh, in Peter's message in this text that you are a holy priesthood. You are set apart. You are the people of God and you are called to walk that way. And so it's with that purpose and that mind we come to this text and we're going to divide it by observing three purposes for God's grace that we might respond in thanks And the first is to wander through this world. You are not meant to be rooted in it. In other words, you are a pilgrim and a sojourner. Second, you are to war against your flesh. And third, you probably saw this. You're to witness to unbelievers in your conduct. So those are three ways that we respond in thanks for God's grace. And so as we consider that first heading to wander through this world, one of the reasons we have grace and we give thanks to God by doing that, I think it is best to see your identity as Peter lays it out in these couple of verses. Because your identity is vitally important, people of God. It establishes what and who you are. You need to always have emblazoned in your mind who you are in Christ. And if you keep your identity at the forefront of your mind, it will change your walk. It really will. First, Peter calls you in verse 11, beloved. Beloved. Well, who are you beloved of? Well, obviously, Peter wrote this to saints who I'm sure were beloved to himself. But ultimately, this is the word of God, friends. This is the word of God, and it is a word to you who are beloved of God, to you who have saving faith in Jesus Christ, to you who have been beloved even to death, beloved as on display at the table this morning. It's a wonderful thing, boys and girls, to be called beloved of God, isn't it? It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's a remarkable thing. To think of the consuming fire and the thrice holy God calling you beloved. But that's your identity, isn't it? As Peter says, you know, you're not supposed to doubt that identity, child of God, if you have saving faith, are you? It would be a great sin to doubt that you are beloved of God. For what does the scripture say through and through? For God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. To doubt that you are beloved of God if you have saving faith is a great sin. You are the beloved of God if you are in Christ. And when God says you are his beloved, you remember our time in Malachi, don't you? What was that awful question when God said that I have loved you? They said, in what way have you loved us? What a terrible sin that is. And I don't think anyone here this today should ever ask the question, especially after taking the sacrament. If you are a Christian who has taken the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, how can you say, in what way have you loved us? And as God has set his love on you, beloved, you are now part of his household. You are part of his family. And that's part of your identity as well. You are a member of the family of God. You are the people of God. Peter reminds you in verse 10, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Does anybody remember that text? If you've been here with us in the afternoons recently out of Hosea, is that not a citation of Hosea? Remember Lo Ami and Lo Ruchama? You remember those two children? 
And Peter sees that in Christ, Jehovah's promise in Hosea was fulfilled. And it's in that context, with that blessing in view, that our verse that we're focusing on in verse 11 follows. He says that you who are not a people are now the people of God. You had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. And then he says, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, so on. And so to be part of the people of God, then he is saying, if you are beloved of God and you're part of the people of God, if you have obtained mercy and have not, uh, who had once not obtained mercy to be part of the people of God necessitates a third identity in this text. He says you are sojourners and pilgrims. And the word translated sojourner is a bit more technical in the Greek and it refers to a foreign citizen which is where you get that idea of sojourner. Someone who lives in one place, but is a citizen of another. And where is your citizenship as the Bible sees it? Boys and girls, is it in America? Is it in Texas? No. What does the Bible say? Philippians 3 verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And that is the country you belong to, friends. Heaven. That is your country. That means what? Heaven's values are meant to be your values. Heaven's charter is your charter, the Bible. That is your constitution, truly, is what is found in this book. But he understands that you are here for a time, and so he calls you a pilgrim. He says you are passing through this world This world is never truly going to be your home. And I wish we could really get that sense knocked into us. Because not many Christians live that way today. We want this world to be our home. You know, this funny is even today, I can't avoid it. When I go on Facebook and I post things concerning the Lord's Day, even today, there are many Christians posting that they are bitter about the election on the Lord's Day. Hard to say that their citizenship is in heaven, is it? So people of God, if that is you, consider Hebrews 11 verse 16 and see if it describes your heart. Now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Do you desire a better and heavenly country? Do you really? Do you really, really desire that? Friends. Friends, you will not live here forever. The sooner that you get that into your head, the better it will be for your walk. Your life is but a what? A vapor, isn't it? And the older I get, the more I say, hallelujah, my life is just a vapor. Praise God. Because at the end of my pilgrim journey, I am taken to a heavenly country with Christ, which is far better. And to meditate on that thought is to wrangle your heart's affections from this world entirely and to put them on Christ Jesus. To emblazon your identity as a sojourner in your heart will keep you away from the world's values. It will keep you faithful to Christ. And what are the world's values? What do we call that in the Bible? We call that worldliness. Worldliness. Let's take one American value that we have. We call it keeping up with the Joneses. Right? That's worldliness. In fact, Madison Avenue only exists because of our society's values. 
Yet it is worldliness, and many of us are affected by it and may not even know it. How about other values that we might be tempted towards? What about our society's constant pushing of hedonism? The enjoyments of the pleasures of this life and the pleasures of self. What of our society's constant pushing of entertainment and amusement? These are our society's great values, friends. Do you dispute that? But if you would have the identity of a sojourner and of the people of God, beloved of God, you would see those values and they would sicken you. Because they are utterly contrary to the values of your heavenly country. Those are the values, mark this well, these are the values of unbelief. Worldliness is the value of unbelief. And yet we are ensnared by it, even though we say we seek a heavenly country. And how do you understand worldliness to be unbelief? Because the Bible says at its core, worldliness is summed up like this. Let us eat and drink. For tomorrow we die. That's worldliness. That's worldliness, friends. It's worldliness in a nutshell. But it's contrary entirely to the hope that we have in Christ, isn't it? Entirely contrary. You're a pilgrim, though. You're wandering out of this world. And you need to remember, Christian, that worldliness chokes out godliness. Worldliness chokes out godliness. That's a core truth. And so if you're not growing spiritually... You might want to check to see if you've been affected by worldliness. If the word of God is not taking root in your heart, see if worldliness has choked out the word, because that's what our Lord says. Now, the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. There's no fruit. Why? Because it is choked out by worldliness. You are though concerned to be sojourners and strangers of this world. And if you are citizens of heaven, we've talked about this at the prayer meeting, at a prayer meeting. If you are citizens of heaven, whose kingdom does the world currently under the sway of? Sin and Satan. You remember that, right? We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. 1 John 5.19, Satan is called the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. Not that, boys and girls understand this, it's not that Satan rules this world and God does not. But the world system is under Satan's dominion presently. Even though Satan is under God's dominion. But to follow the world then, what's the implication? To follow the world and its values is to follow Satan and not Christ. And so this is, and I may become even less popular among you, but I want you to consider how much of the world is coming into your home and how much is coming into your souls. It is a constant fight to keep it out, friends. And often we cave right to it. It tries to ooze into every crevice of your home and your soul. Games, movies, music, social media, You know, the world used to come into Christian homes, maybe if you went to the movie theater in the old days. Then there was the television and radio, and it came closer into our home. And now you have the smartphone. And let me say this as a great lover of technology, but you need to be very, very careful with this device. 
Very careful with it. Because this is a direct line from the world into your soul. Almost completely unfiltered. It is engineered to be addictive. It really is. The apps on it are engineered to be addictive. The notifications you get are engineered to be addictive. And though it is a mobile device, so here's the irony, it is not a pilgrim device. Right? And I say this as someone who loves technology, and you know that about me. But this device will keep you in the world no matter where you are. And the thing that is really staggering is that the world has even convinced Christians to hand covenant children these things so that the world can have direct access to them. And it's staggering that we might make such a blunder. And I'm not talking about, oh, I let my son play with it and, you know, he's young and, and all. I'm talking about parents who give them to own as their own, to have. And it's such a grievous error to give a young child a smartphone to have as their own. I'm seeing kids as young as 10 who have these things. And it's, it's staggering. There is no way for you to lock that thing down completely. Absolutely no. There are websites, and I'm not going to mention them, young people. There are websites and uh, places you can go that will show you latest OS update. This is how you get past all the security. And take it from me, uh, a person who knows two things, loopholes in technology and the industriousness of children. Uh, Parents, I think you remember how industrious you were when you were a young child to get past all of mom and dad's locks, right? Uh, Especially because you didn't have a job and responsibilities. But um, uh, I want to mention it because it is a great problem with worldliness. These things give the world wide open access to us. And our children. And so pilgrims, raise your children to be pilgrims and not worldlings. I know, and I'm saying this because this is rather near to me in some ways because of close friends. I know three Christian children who have gone apostate because they were lured by those who gained access to them through smartphones. One is the son of an elder. Phones their parents thought were locked down. And there are many evil persons who love to prey, especially on children who are children of the covenant. If the world is under Satan's dominion, that tells you why. Because our children are a great prize for Satan. And what I want you to see is that this is a war, friends. The world hates you. And the world wages war in a devious way. We had a conversation at lunch concerning that. It's a very subtle thing, the way that Satan comes at us. Because Satan appears as an angel of light. And in one way, though I I, I dislike so much about the movements, the fundamentalists in some ways may be vindicated at the end of the age because of how they see separation from the world. I take it too far, I think. But there is something to it. The world wages war. Don't let your children become casualties. Or ourselves either. We are often addicted. I talk to men all the time. Who are addicted to these things. And I know it's a snare for myself. And but boys and girls. What I want to encourage you. Is that if your parents. Are trying to keep you from worldly influences. It is not that they despise you. And it's not that they don't want you to have fun. And they don't want you to be popular. It's because they love you. And want to save your soul from Satan's dominion. Because he is waging war on your soul. And there's no greater joy, of course, we hear in the Bible that my children walk in truth, but there's going to be no greater joy than to see our children in heaven with us. And we don't want to be there without you. 
So they love you with the love of Christ when they keep you from these things and see it like that, children. And lest you misunderstand, I want to be clear on what worldliness is not. It's not worldly to want to advance your estate. It's not worldly to enjoy conjugal love in marriage. It's not worldly to have fun and enjoy a competent portion. I love that our catechism puts it that way, a competent portion of the good things in this life. Renouncing worldliness does not mean giving up those good things, but it means to renounce the world's values, even in good things. Friends, be determined to crucify the world's grip on you. Because we all come into this world loving it. And praise God that by God's grace, he can crucify the world to your heart. What does Paul say in Galatians 6? But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I unto the world. So as we go and rise from the supper with thankfulness, pray he would use that great means of grace to pierce your heart by the cross of Christ and kill the affections you have for the world and he can kill it dead. The world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. By the cross of Christ, the world has been crucified to you. You just have to live that way by the grace of God. It means that the world can actually have no power over you unless you give it to it. Power to it. And if the cross of Christ meant anything to you this morning, you're called to live this way. You know, there has been a tremendous, tremendous decline in Christians living otherworldly lives. Frankly, I am embarrassed at too much of what goes on in Reformed churches as we seem to love to live like the world, and then we call it freedom. It's embarrassing. I think God is quite embarrassed by so much, maybe angered is the better term, by so much of what goes on in our churches. I've been part of social media groups, and it is embarrassing to see the things that are on the minds of Christians. Embarrassing. Titus 2.12 says, you must deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. What's that but the language of carrying your cross and denying yourself? The apostle says, live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age in Titus 2. Does that describe you, friend? Sober, righteous, and godly. I hope so. I hope so. Live for Christ and not the world. And that is a difficult thing, naturally speaking. But there is a great reason to take heart. The Bible says what? He that is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So I, I don't want you to get the wrong impression that this is something that is so difficult and so hard. He says in 1 John 4, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. And he says with emphasis, We are of God. Once again, your identity is important, isn't it? You are of God. You are not of the world. It's an impossible battle to stay from worldliness if God's Holy Spirit is not in you. But he says he is far greater than the world. And he has nourished you by the Lord's Supper. So that you can live as a sojourner as you seek your true homeland above. And that pleases the Lord.
That pleases the Lord. Do you want to please the Lord, friends? Do you want to give thanks for his mercies? Live as pilgrims and pray that great petition. Do you know the petition that you must pray to be a pilgrim? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What a great petition that is against worldliness. And heaven, not earth, will consume your life. You know, if you pray that petition with understanding, worldliness will be removed from you so much. And remember this about the world, especially boys and girls. And this world is what? Passing away and the lust of it. He who does the will of God abides forever. In, in a way, the Bible is saying it is laughable to live for that which is passing away. Here today, gone tomorrow. But he who abides in God lives forever. He who does the will of God abides forever. Worldliness, in other words, is irrational. It's foolishness. It's folly. As we sing in Psalm 85, let us not return to our folly to live as worldlings. But the heavenly country we seek abides forever and we will too. So show thanks by living as a pilgrim whose citizenship is in heaven. And with that, then let's consider the second way to show thanks in your conduct, which is to war against the flesh. And I want you to see, if, if you see that this even sounds overemphasized, I want you to see how important it is to the apostle. You need to see it. He prefaces his remarks in verse 12 by begging. Beloved, I beg you. Or as in the King James, I beseech you. Are these not striking words? What would it be like if Peter were here preaching this message? He would be pleading with you. He would plead with you. He would say, Beloved, I beg you, abstain from these worldly lusts that wage war against your soul. And you would see it in his face. You would see it in his countenance. And you would see his concern for your souls. I hope you might see that in me too. As these are difficult things to say. But his plea is this. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And while Peter is saying it, Peter is dead and he's in glory now. But it is really Jesus who is pleading with you out of the word right this moment by his spirit. 1 Corinthians 5.20, we are told we plead as though God were pleading through us. Will you hear him plead with you this afternoon to not be worldly and abstain from fleshly lusts? Friends, even in this congregation, some of you are taken up by these things. I know it as your pastor. I know why Peter pleads. He saw the effects of worldliness and fleshly lusts as I do. What are these fleshly lusts? If you want a list, you can look at Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. In other words, you don't need great learning to know the works of the flesh. They are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries. And he cannot even finish the thought and he says, and the like. I would run out of room to write. And the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past. He's had to say this multiple times to the people of God. That those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
The flesh, the lusts of the flesh, you know what they are. Paul says they are evident. And consider how common they are. And how your flesh is inclined to them. Fornication and adultery, it's all around us. You can't even drive into Dallas without seeing it on billboards. Idolatry, selfish ambitions, the worship of ourselves and of idols. Hatred and contentions, we are prone to devour our, uh, one another naturally. Jealousy and envy, we are not satisfied with our lot in life. Murders, we are prone to hate our neighbor. Drunkenness and revelries, we even want to indulge in things that are lawful, like alcohol, to the point where they become unlawful. And these are the lusts of the flesh. And as Paul said, in effect, the list is so long, I've run out of time and space, and we'll just say, and the like. But no matter, he said, these are evident. And I think you would know them if you spent a few minutes rummaging through your own heart. You would know the works of the flesh, especially if you have a copy of God's word and the larger catechism's exposition on the Ten Commandments. And consider what these fleshly lusts do to your soul. Peter says, they war against your soul. They war against your soul. You know, our condition is very strange and very twisted, people of God. We crave the things that war against our soul. And we think we can just indulge in them. But if it has waged war on your soul, what are you called to do as a good soldier of Christ? You're called to fight back, aren't you? How does Peter tell you to fight back? He did not say to moderate your indulgence of the flesh. He said, abstain. Totally cut them out. Totally cut anything out that causes you to indulge in the flesh. Cut it off. What did our Lord say? Even if your right hand or your right eye cause you to sin, cut it off. The Lord is deadly serious about what to do with the lusts of the flesh and worldliness, friends. Certain kinds of movies have no place in the Christian life, friend. Cut it off. Certain kinds of websites have no place in the Christian life. Cut it off. Certain kinds of parties have no place in the Christian life. Cut it off. Even certain kinds of employments have no place in the Christian life and cut it off. Remember, this is called war. The flesh wages war against your soul, and you are called to wage war in return, not just defensively, but offensively. Take the indwelling corruption of the flesh. Take your desires of the flesh, and don't just wait for them to erupt. Take them with specificity and present them before God in prayer. Pray, readily admitting, Lord, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, you know, the Lord doesn't leave you to your own devices in this war, does he? He says you have a great advocate, a mighty deliverer from the lust of the flesh. If you would just go to him with intentionality and with perseverance concerning your struggle. For the flesh lusteth after the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Do you see the spirit's natural enemy and who's mightier, the flesh or the spirit, the spirit. These are contrary the one to the other so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. 
Galatians 5, 16 through 17. The spirit loves to attack the flesh. That's what the word of God says. So let him have at it, friends. Let him have at it, friends. Let the flesh have it by utilizing the spirit's hatred of the flesh. You must recognize you have a mighty advocate in the spirit to, and you will advance in the war. That is why in Romans 8, you are told to mortify the deeds of the flesh by what? The spirit. Because the spirit is a powerful enemy of the flesh. Friends, if you are tired and you are weary of this battle, you might be seeking to mortify the deeds of the flesh in your own strength. And not handing the battle to the Lord. What does Paul say? Are you so foolish? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit. Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? It'd be a foolish thing friends. For you to go about doing this work. And doing this war in the flesh. He would call you a fool. The battle is the Lord's. Praise God. Give the battle to the Holy Spirit. He hates the sinful flesh. And he, unlike you, is almighty. The Lord in his kindness has given you the great enemy of sin to be your friend. And how do you seek his help? How about you pray? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil at the very beginning of your day. How many of you do something like that? How many of you have the spirit in mind at the beginning of your day, remembering that your flesh wages war against you? But I suspect most of us are asleep at our post, if I will use the war analogy so much more. You're asleep at your post. Isn't that what happened to Christ's own disciples? Could you not even wait for a short period of time and watch and pray lest you fall into temptations? Uh, And the other part of it is, of course, you know that the spirit, this is a smart congregation. You know that the means of grace are those means that the Lord spirit nourishes you and he gives you spiritual food to engage this war against the flesh. The spirit gives you sustenance. You know, maybe I'm going to overuse the war analogy, but it would be a foolish soldier who didn't use the rations that were given to him. And starve, as it were, on the battlefield and be weak for the battle. And you need to understand, if you are discouraged today, that this war is never ending in this life. It isn't. So you need to engage in it until your dying day. The confession says this sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abideth still some remnants of corruption in every part. And I want you to, this language has always encouraged me. Whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war. The flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Do you hear that language of war even in your own confession of faith, friends? It comes from the Bible. We saw it. And so let me add another identity, a fourth identity. You are a soldier as well as a sojourner, friends. And if you know this is your identity, you will not be discouraged that you struggle with sin. 
You will know that it is part and parcel of your life. You will expect it and you will be watchful for sin and you'll be watchful for temptation. And you will know that you do not fight alone, that the Holy Spirit is given to you. And you have brothers and sisters right here who are fighting the same fight themselves. And so you are called to persevere, friends, and fight the good fight. We confess a doctrine and we forget it, though we are very glib about it when we talk to semi-Pelagians. We confess the doctrine that is called the persevere of the saints not the ease of the saints the perseverance of the saints and take heart friends once again the battle is the Lord's he will win it he will fight it for you our confession is encouraging as well in which war although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail Yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Wonderful encouragement from that section of the confession. I have it on your outline if you want to review it. And so you have received this morning grace to war against the flesh. Do that. By God's help, fight the good fight as soldiers and sojourners. And lastly, I want to consider that we have received grace to witness to unbelievers. In verse 12, Peter says, unbelievers will speak against you as evildoers. Now, I think we forget that. And in our current society, we are taken aback when that happens, aren't we? You know, a lot of Christians are now astonished that they are being called evildoers as our society becomes more and more pagan. But why do they call us evildoers, friends? It's because we stand for Jesus Christ. Because we stand for holiness, or we should. Maybe they don't call us evildoers enough. And maybe that's something that we have to take note of. Uh, In chapter 4, verses 3 to 4, Peter says this. And this is uh, Peter's epistle. If you look at it as a whole, it paints this remarkable picture concerning this theme. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation or debauchery. Speaking evil of you. Because you call what they do evil. Because you wage war on the world and lust. They see it. And they have no wish to be convicted by their own sins. So they speak evil of you. And you know these things because you have spent enough of your past lifetime in doing these things. And they will find lots of ways to speak evil about you because they do not want to be convicted of sin and see their need for Christ. And the people of God have been called evildoers for so from the time from time immemorial. You remember that the people of God were, were called troublemakers by Haman. You remember that? You remember that uh, when Nehemiah, they were trying to build up Jerusalem and the enemies of God said, these are a troublesome people. Then you remember in uh, Philippi, it was said of Paul and Silas, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city 
Acts 16? Did they come to create a ruckus? Did they come to create a riot? No, they simply preached the gospel and preached against idolatry. They came to preach Christ crucified for sinners. And because unlike other religions, our message is repent of sin and turn to Christ. And you have no other hope outside of that. They find you to be a troublemaker. Don't they? Why it's so interesting recently, I read an LA Times article where it blamed churches alone for spreading COVID-19. No protesters, no rioters. It's always the church that they will aim their fire at. And the people of God are called trouble by the world because the world just would wish that we would disappear. Because we are convicting to the world. Or at least, once again, we should be. And the issue is not so much that they hate you, of course. It's that they hate your Lord. If the world hates you, what? You know that it hated me before it hated you. And that is why you are going to be spoken of as an evildoer. Boys and girls, as you continue in the faith by God's grace, they are going to call you evildoers. Even more so in your generation than mine. Don't be troubled by it, but expect it. But when they speak evil against you, what will your reaction be? And Peter here wants you to walk very carefully. Is your reaction supposed to be sinful anger? May God burn them all as James and John wanted to do once upon a time. And strangely, that seems to be the response again for many Christians on social media to the world. But we are called to wage war on the world in a peculiar way. And it's interesting here if you look at verse 12. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. What does he say? They call you evildoers? Fine. You behave with godly conduct. And you respond with good works that they might observe them. Peter heard this from our Lord at the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? And he repackages it here. Christ said, you, you church, are the light of the world, didn't he? And he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Matthew five sixteen. And do you see what the motivation is for both Peter and Jesus? It is the glory of God. It's the glory of God. Peter said, do these things that they, the unbeliever, would glorify God in the day of visitation. And that's a peculiar phrase, peculiar to Peter. The day of visitation is the day when God's spirit visits them. When the outward call of God, like it has in the preaching of the word or in the reading of the word, when the outward call of God goes out to these unbelievers by his spirit, And that he might use your witness to bring them to the day of visitation. You know, it's not uncommon to hear of unbelievers coming to hear the gospel in a church because of the conduct of a godly friend. They come to hear the word preached and the spirit visits them in that not outward call, but the effectual call. And it becomes the day of visitation to them. And that brings glory to God as they begin, as these unbelievers begin to praise him for salvation. Your good works, Peter says, will have this effect on unbelievers. And it brings praises to God. Friends, let me say something very pointed. It is much easier to criticize pagans on Facebook 
than to step away from the keyboard or the mouse and go to glorify God by doing good works for them to observe. Much easier to criticize pagans on Facebook than to go and do good works. And yet we've convinced ourselves we are doing something grand. And the thing you must understand is that an evil conduct obstructs the message of the gospel. John Gill said this, When the gospel shall come among them and take effect, a good conversation will encourage them in their conversion, but an evil one will obstruct it. Now, if you know John Gill, that's actually a rather fascinating thing for him to say, because he has sort of strains of hyper-Calvinistic tendencies. But it's interesting that a man like Gill would say that your conduct can be instrumental in a soul's conversion. Your conduct is vitally important, people of God, to the conversion of unbelievers in your sphere. So you might think today, as you think of the thanks, uh, of, of showing thanks to God, is there a way you might glorify God by good works unbelievers could observe? How about you start in your own home with your children? with your husband or wife, especially if they're unbelievers today. There's something else that's sobering. You talked about devices, but there's something else that's more sobering than that. Many children of the covenant have apostatized because mom and dad live as hypocrites. Countless. So consider your conduct at home, mom and dad. Then go out to your neighbors and even to strangers Sad to say, to too many of our neighbors, our profession of faith has seen nothing more than as hot air. Gill once again says, a clean, just, good conversation may not only stop their mouths, but may possibly be a means to bring them to glorify God and turn to you. When they shall see you excel all others in good works, they now call you evildoers. Vindicate yourselves, and I would say vindicate Christ by good works. This is the way to convince them. It's a challenging word. And I'm well aware, friends, that your flesh and my flesh as well has hated pretty much everything I have said tonight. And it has already constructed arguments for your mind to shy away from the duties that are before us in this text. Arguments of why it's no problem to partake of the world, why it's no problem to indulge in sinful passions just a little bit, and why unbelievers are simply not worthy of your good works. That is the subtlety of your sin nature and the deceitfulness of sin. That is the subtlety of the serpent, who is now even saying, has God really said? But you are called to wage war. Wage war. Wage war as sojourners whose citizenship is in heaven. Even ladies and girls, I thought this was so interesting. You are not called to fight wars as soldiers in this place, are you? Yet you are called a soldier of Christ, even so. You do not fight on the earthly battlefield, but you fight in the spiritual battlefield. You are rightly called soldiers of Christ. In this war, you are too a soldier. And I'm going to beg you, Even as Peter did in this text, as Christ begs, if you love the Lord and you have seen what he has done for you in the Lord's Supper, fight the good fight and wage this war for Christ's sake, friend. 
I beg you, press on and persevere in the irreconcilable war. There's no way to make peace. It is irreconcilable. There's no way to make peace with the world and the flesh. You also wage war against the world when you do good deeds. It's counterintuitive, but that's the implication of the text. And do it for the glory of Christ and render thanks to him in these ways. So I'll ask you one last question tonight. How will you answer the question of the psalmist? What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? May this text and even the sermon give you a framework by which you may answer the question. Amen. Please rise for prayer.